Hi guys, welcome back to my channel. I'm sat reading a book and my dog's at the side of me, so I apologise if you hear a noise from the dogs. So I'm going to read a fairy tale. And it's a British fairy tale. It's called Tom Tit Tot. I've scanned through it and I'll be honest, some of the words are spelt very different. Skins is spelt differently, even though it says skins. And there are a few words that I'm not used to. So we, we will see how it goes. Um, and I shall tell the story best that I can, I suppose. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a woman. She baked five pies. And when they came out of the oven, they were overbaked. The crust was too hard to eat. So she said to her daughter, put them pies on the shelf, she said. And leave them a little, and they'll come again. She means, you know, that the crust would get soft. But the girl, she said to herself, if they'll come again, I'll eat them now. And she set to work and ate them all, first and last. Welcome supper time, the woman, she said. Go you, get me one of them pies there. I dare say they've come again now. The girl, she went. And she looked, and there wasn't nothing but the dishes. So back she came and said, No, they ain't come again. None of them, said the mother. None of them, said she. Well, come again and not come again, said the woman. I'll have one for supper. But you can't if they ain't come again, said the girl. But I can, said she. Go you, and bring me the best of them. Best or worst, said the girl, I've ate them all, and you can't have one till it's come again. Well, the woman, she was wholly hate, and she took her spinning to the door to spin. And so she spun, she sang. My daughter ate five, five pies today. My daughter ate five, five pies today. The king was coming down the street, and he heard the song, but could not hear exactly what she was singing. So he stopped and said, What was that you were singing of? The woman. She was so ashamed. She was ashamed to let him know what her daughter had actually been doing. So instead, she sang, My daughter spun five five skins today. My daughter spun five, five skins today. Stars of mine, said the king. I never heard anyone who could do that. Then he said, look you here, I want a wife, and I'll marry your daughter. But look you here, he said, eleven months out of twelve. She shall have all the victuals she likes to eat. She shall have all the gowns she likes to get. And all the company she likes to keep. But on the last month of the year, she'll have to spun five skins every day. And if she doesn't, I shall kill her. All right, said the woman. For she thought this was a good marriage. And she figured... That by this time came the twelve, of course, that maybe the king would have forgotten. Or they would find another way of being able 
to get the skins. Well, they married. And for 11 months, the girl did get all the victuals she could eat, all the gowns that she liked to get, and all the company that she could keep. But when the time was getting over, she began to think about the skins. And, in wonder, she wondered in his mind if he had thought about it. But not one word did he say about it. And she wholly thought he'd forgotten. However, the last day of the eleventh month, he took her to a room she'd never seen before. There was nothing in it but a spinning wheel and a stool. And she said, Is this my room? He did say to her. Now, my dear, here you'll be shut in tomorrow with some victuals and some furs. And if you haven't spun the skins by the night, your head'll go off. And away he went about his business. Well, she was that frightened. She'd always been such a headless girl and she didn't so much know how to spin. And what would she do tomorrow with no one to come and help her? So she sat down in a stool, on a stool in the kitchen and she did begin to cry. She cried and cried and cried. All of a sudden, she heard a knock at the door. She upped and opened it and what should she see but a small little black thing with a long tail. It looked up at her right curious and it said, What are you crying for? What's that to you? she said. Never you mind, it said, but tell me what you're crying for. It don't do me no good if I do, she said. You don't know that, it said and twirled its tail around. Well, she said, it won't do no harm. But if it don't do no good, and she upped, and told about the pies and the skins and everything. This is what I'll do, said the little black thing. I'll come to your window every morning, and take the furs and bring it spun at night. What's your pay, she said. It looked out of the corners of its eyes and it said, I'll give you three guesses every night to guess my name. And if you haven't, well, if you haven't guessed my name before the month's up, you shall be mine. All right. All right, she said. I agree. All right, it said, and it twirled its tail and left. The next day, her husband, he took her into the room, and there was furs and the day's victuals. Now, there's the fox, said he, and if that ain't spun up this night, off goes your head. And then he went out and locked the door. He'd hardly gone when there was a knocking against the window. She opened it and there, sure enough, was the little odd thing. String on the ledge. 
sitting, looking at her. Hmm. Where's the flax, it said. Here it is, she said. She gave it him. Well, come the evening, a knocking fell on the window yet again. She opened it, and there was a little odd thing with five skins of flax on its arm. Here it be, it said, and it gave the fax to the girl. Now, what's my name? Mm, will it be Bill, she said. No, it ain't, it said, and it whirled its tail. Is it Ned, she said. No, it ain't, it said, and twirled its tail. Is it Dick, she said. No, it ain't, it said, and it twirled its tail harder, and away it went. Well, when the husband came in, there were the five skins, ready for him. I see. I shan't have to kill you tonight, my dear, said he. You'll have your victuals, your flats in the morning, said he, and away he went. Well, every day the flax and the victuals and the furs were brought, and every day that the little black imp used to come, mornings and used to come, evenings. And all the day the girl was sat trying to think of names to say to it when it come at night. But she never hit the right one. And she tried and tried until it was towards the end of the month. The imp, it began to look more malice definitely maliceful and it twirled its tail faster and faster each time she gave it a guess it come to the last day but one the imperate began at night along with the five skins and it said what ain't you got my name yet is it rob she said no, it ain't, it said. Is it Hob, she said. No, it ain't, it said. Is it Lob, she said. No, it ain't that neither, it said. Then it looked at her with its eyes. Its eyes were burning like coals in fire. And it said, woman, there's only tomorrow night. And then you'll be mine. And away it flew. Well, she felt horrid. However, she heard the king coming along the passage. In he came, and when he saw the five skins, Well, my dear, I don't see that you'll have your skins ready tomorrow night as well. I don't see... Don't see how. I reckon I shan't have to kill you. I'll have supper in here tonight. So they brought supper and another stool for him. And down the two they sat. Now he hadn't even eaten but a mouthful or so.
when he stopped and began to laugh. What is it, she said. Why, said he, I was out hunting today and I got away to a place in the wood I'd never been before. There was an old chalk pit and I heard a sort of humming, kind of. So I got off my bobby and I went right quiet towards the pit and I looked down. Well, what was there? There, he said, was the funniest little black thing. The funniest little black thing you ever laid eyes on. And what was he doing? What was he doing? It had a little spinning wheel. And it was spinning wonderful. Twirling spins. It was very fast. But it was twirling its tail. Twirling its tail and spinning. And as it spun, it sang. Nimmy, nummy, not. My, t- my name's Tom's Tit Tot. Nummy, nimmy, not. My name's Tom Tit Tot. Nimmy, nummy, no. My name's Tom Tit Tot. Well, when the girl heard this, she figured this could be the name. And she nearly jumped out of her skin for joy. But she didn't say a word. The next day, that there little thing looked with malice when it come for the flax. And at night, she heard it knocking against the window panes. She opened the window and it came right in. Jumped off the ledge. And it was grinning from ear to ear. Its tail was twirling round and round so very fast. What's my name? It said as it gave her the skins. Is it Bullbegger? She said, pretending to be afraid. No, it ain't, it said. And it came further into the room. Is it Chubanapper? Said she. No, it ain't, said the impet, and it laughed and twirled its tail till you couldn't hardly see it. Take time, woman, it said. Next guess, and you're mine. And it stretched out its black hands to her. She backed a step or two, and she looked at it. And then she laughed out. She laughed out loud, and she said, pointing her finger at it, Nimmy, Nimmy Noo, your name's Tim Tit Tot. Nimmy, Nimmy Noo, your name's Tom Tit Tot. Well, when it heard her, it shrieked awful. And away it flew, into the dark, and she never saw it ever again. And that was the tale of Tom Tit Tot. Now, it's an old book, and some of the words are not quite readable, so 
I've done the best that I can. As you know with old books, they degrade over time and it's just unfortunate that some of the words just barely readable. So I've done my best and um, I'm sorry if it's not quite right, but I do promise that I did try my best. Um, I think you all probably gathered that that's the story of um, something else, but I mean, these are before they were changed, so that's why it sounds very different. But thank you for bearing with me and thank you for listening. I am reading many more, you know, but I would like to share them and, and read them with you guys and let you see the differences. Please leave a like and don't forget to subscribe. I would really appreciate it. And feel free to share if you like. Many blessings. Thank you for listening. Hi guys, welcome back to my channel. The fairy tale that we are on right now is Kate Crackernuts. Once upon a time there was a king and a queen, as in many lands have been. The king had a daughter and the queen had a daughter. The queen was jealous of the king's daughter for being bonnier than her own and she cast about to spoil her beauty. So the queen took counsel of the hen wife. Send the lassie to me in morning to get eggs, said the hen wife, and send her fasting. The queen did so, but the lassie found a crust of bread to eat before she went out. When she came to the hen wives, she asked for eggs. Lift the lid off that pot there and see, said the hen wife. She lifted the lid off the pot, but nothing happened. Go home to your minnie, said the hen wife, and tell her to keep the press door better steak it. The lassie went back home and told the queen what the hen wife had said. So the queen watched her the next morning and sent her away fasting. But the lassie picked a handful of wheat at the roadside and ate it by the way. Then she went to the henwife and asked for the eggs. Lift the lid off that pot there and see, said the henwife. The lassie lifted the lid off the pot, but nothing happened. Go home to your minnie, said the henwife, and tell her the pot won't boil if the fire's away. So the lassie went home and told the queen. The next day, the queen herself took the lassie to the hen wife. And when she lifted the lid, off jumped the lassie's own bonny head and on jumped a sheep's. The queen was pleased. I was a bit baffled then, guys. <laughs> so, yeah, she lost her head, but it got replaced by a sheep's head. Hmm. But the queen's daughter, Kate, took a fine linen cloth and wrapped it around her sister's head and took her by the hand and went out to seek their fortune. They went and they went far till they came to a king's house. Kate knocked on the door and called, A night's lodging for me and my sick sister. 
You'll get that, said the king. If you'll sit up with my sick son, I will, said Kate. There'll be a peck of silver for you, said the king, if it's all right. So Kate sat up by the sick prince's bed, and all went well till midnight. Then, at twelve o'clock, when it was ringing, the prince rose and dressed himself and went downstairs. Kate followed. The prince went to the stable, saddled his horse, called his hound, jumped into the saddle, and Kate leapt lightly up behind him. Away rode the prince and Kate through the green wood. Kate, as they passed, plucking nuts from the trees and filling her apron. They rode on until they came to a green hill. The prince here drew bridle and said, Open, open, green hill, and let the young prince in with his horse and his hound, and added Kate, his lady him behind. The green hill opened and they passed in. Inside the hill there was a hall, brightly lightened up, and many beautiful ladies took the prince and led him off to the dance, while Kate, unperceived, sat herself by the door. There she saw the prince dancing, 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 till he could dance no longer, and fell upon the floor. When the ladies would fan him and kiss him, and he would rise up again and go dancing. Then the cock crew, and the prince made all haste to get homeward and back, Kate leaping lightly up behind him, and home they rode, and Kate sat down by the fire and cracked her nuts and ate them. The king said, How is the sick prince? He will be better yet, said Kate. Sit up with him again, said the king. There'll be a pinch of gold, if you're all right. So Kate sat with the sick prince a second night, and all happened as it had the first. Away rode the prince and Kate through the green wood. Kate, as they passed, plucking nuts from the trees and filling her apron. They came to the green hill, and the prince said, Open, open, green hill, and let the young prince in with his horse and his hound, and added Kate, his lady, him behind. The green hill opened, and the beautiful ladies let the prince and led him off to the dance, while Kate, unperceived, sat herself by the door. She saw a harney playing with a wand, and one of the ladies said, Three strokes of that wand would make Kate, Kate's sick sister, a bonnie, a bonnie as ever she was before. So Kate rallied, and she rallied. She decided she would do this, and she rolled nuts to the harnier, and rolled nuts till the harnier toddled after the nuts and let fall the wand and Kate took it up and put it in her apron. Then the cock crew and the prince made all haste to get homeward and back. Kate leaping lightly up behind him and home they made and Kate sat down by the fire and cracked her nuts and ate them. The one she had left of course. The king said, how is the sick prince? 
He will be better yet, said Kate. Sit with him again, said the king. If I can have him to wed, you'll get that, if all's right. So Kate sat with the sick prince a third night, and away they rode. The prince, and of course Kate, through the greenwood. Kate, as they pass, plucking nuts from the trees and filling her apron. The green hill opened and they passed in, and the prince danced. And Kate, unperceived, sat herself by the door. The harney was playing with a birdie, and one of the ladies said, Three bites of that birdie would make the sick prince as well as ever he was. So Kate rolled nuts to the hernie the first time she did it, remember? And she got the wand. So she did it again and again and rolled more nuts until the harney toddled after the nuts and left the birdie to fall. And Kate took it up and put it in her apron. Then the cock crew and the prince made all haste to get on horseback and hurry back home. Kate leaping lightly up behind him. And home they rode. Kate plucked the feathers off and cooked the birdie. Oh, the smell. And the sick prince. I wish I had a bite of that birdie, said he. So Kate gave him a bite of the birdie. And he rose up on his elbows. By and by he cried out again. Oh, if I have another bite of that birdie. Oh, if I had another bite of that birdie. So Kate gave him another bite. And he sat upon his bed. Then he said again. Oh, if I have another bite of that birdie. A third bite of that birdie. So Kate gave him a third bite. And he forgot the green hill. He dressed himself, sat down by the fire, and when the king came and found Kate and the young prince cracking nuts together, Kate took the wand and gave her sister three strokes of it, and it says strokes, not strokes, just to be clear. And the sheep's head fell off, and her own head was on again, and the king's second son saw her and fell in love with her immediately. So... The sick son married the well sister, and the well son married the sick sister. They lived long and died happy, and never drank out of a dry cappy. And that is the story of Kate Crackernuts. I'm not sure um, where it originates from. It's very interesting, and the wording's very odd. I did um, read it exactly as it's actually put in the book. So that's interesting to me. It always is. So that was Kate Crackernuts. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this little tale. I sure did. And many blessings. Hi guys. Welcome back to my channel. Thank you for joining me. Jack and the Green Lady. It's a fairy tale of tonight. Once long ago, and a long time it was. If I were there then, I should not be there now. If I were there then and now, I should have a new story, or an old story, or 
I should have no story at all. However, it was. Jack left home. And in the home, his old mother had a broken box. He tramped along a dreary, muddy road for miles and miles. And at last, he took a seat and reconsidered himself. And he shook his head. Why did I, oh foolish boy, leave my home, said Jack. Me, who was determined to see life. Because I'd never seen life before. What is my old mother doing now without me? He shook his head again. But he plucked up courage, brushed his coat and his cap, and started on tramp once more. Now, Jack, he said, as he sighed his way along the road, oh, there's only yourself you've got to talk to. He began to feel tired again, so he rested his weary foot. That night was dark, and bright stars shone above him, but he could not speak to the stars. All at once, a clear light stood in front of him. So he glared at it. He glared at it one side and with his brain and his heart wondered and plundered what was going to be at the end. Well, Jack, old boy, he said, cheer up. And now you must take some sleep. At long last the morning came, and the birds began their bright singing. When lightened Jack a great deal, for the birds did lighten him so. And the sun was shining, so beautiful he could see the rocks and the meadows clearly, and a large grey castle on a hill in front of him. Jack, my lad, he said, you do not know what's before you. That castle may be your fortune. He went on, and soon he sighed again, tired and dreary, hungry and thirsty. He glared at one side on a grey old farmhouse. He ventured to open the gate and knocked at the farm door. He asked the woman there for a drink. The old farmer woman asked him quite suddenly and hushed him in for tea. What is a young man like you doing about the country? Have you no work? No, there isn't no work for poor Jack, he said to the old woman farmer. Why, she asked. Well, said Jack. It's like a good few of your farmers, said Jack. You have got a superstition of a man stealing what you got. But, bearing at you, as I do bear, you made such a brag and a boast about it. We'll begin with you, Mrs.
Is there any work for poor Jack from you? Well, my man, she said, only hard work. Jack laughed as she stood with her coarse apron at the door. Give me a chance, missus, to see what I can do. Well, she said, quite sneery, what can you do? Excuse me, said Jack, quite on the laughing side, pulling his cap off so politely and brushing back his black hair. I'll give you an offer of work this instant minute. I'll chop that big tree for you, missus, into logs for your oven. For a bite to eat. Well, said the woman, here's my chopper. Jack smiled to himself and muttered. She's a hard piece of brick, is that farmer woman. He worked to aided Jack. And, feeling very dreary, hungry and thirsty, brought the wood to the door. Jack, she said, quite the new thing now. You've done more work than any one of my men have done. Seat yourself down at the table and eat and drink of the best. Now, Jack thought to himself, it's only the start of a dream for you, my boy. It's only the first lesson. But somehow, these hard-hearted manly women come soft-hearted at the end. After he'd done his fill, food and drink, he sat himself down by the fireside and plundered very deeply about what his poor old mother would be doing. And he started to make amends very smartly and asked the woman, could he have a wash? Of course, she said, quite cheerful. I'll get it ready. It'll refresh you as well, Jack. And out he went with the bucket and soap. And the farmer woman hurried after him and delivered him the towel. Thank you kindly, said Jack. You've been like a mother to me, but not exactly like my poor old mummy. I don't know why it says that after saying mother, but... Hmm. She used to cling to me and pray for me more than anybody in the world. Well, the woman fetched him a suit next, belonging to one of her sons, and begged him to stay the night. But all he said was, How far is the next village from here, missus? You don't mean to say you'll walk 20 miles tonight, Jack, she said. I want you to stay with me and I'll give you good money and good food. Do you know out about ploughing? No, he said. Then quite stern at the woman. The best ploughing I ever did is ploughing the hard road. So I'll stay no longer than tonight. And mind, you'll call me up at six o'clock in the morning. The next morning came. He heard the gentle creak on the stairs. And up he jumped on the cheerful side. Well, Jack, he said to himself, you do look smart, brisk lad now. And you'll soon be away for your dear hard road. 
he enjoyed his breakfast with the woman and told her straight he must leave that same morning. Poor foolish Jack, she said. I suppose you're thinking of that grey castle. Hmm. There's naught there for you, my boy. Naught whatsoever. The very idea of you going there, you poor foolish lad. Well, said Jack, I'm determined to see life. And life I will see. So off he went, carrying a little food with him. He shut the gate behind him very merrily and started laughing. Oh, he said, I'm on the hard road again. Off he set upon the road and he did not give a thought to the twenty miles ahead of him at all. And he was smiling to himself. I'll soon make that castle speak, he said. It's been on my brain long enough. He could see the lodge, the side of the castle, and there was a light on in the lodge. When he got to the door of the lodge, he spartaned himself and gave the knock on the door, a hard one, a very hard knock. An old grey lady came out to him. She opened the door and gave him a little smile. What can you want here, boy? she asked. What a different voice she has from that hard brick, Jack said to himself, and he laughed. I want to know. Mother, he said, not aloud, who lives up at that grey castle? You come in, boy, and I'll try to explain to you, she said. You're very late. Are you looking for work? I've been here. Thirty-three years, and I've seen no man like you walking about this road. But there's no harm in you going up. There's only an old gentleman there, and he's dead. Er, uh, said Jack. Never mind. Never mind? Hmm... Never mind, never enter, never will. I'm not sure what that actually means, guys. And I'm going up, mother. Good night, boy, she said. Take care of yourself. You've got two miles yet to go to get to that castle. Jack went along through two big iron gates and made his way to the castle. He went over old, lumpy and bumpy, old stones but he didn't care for the bumpy stones at all he carried on he came to the door of the castle dirty big lamps of lead were on that door but it had a beautiful door knocker he knocked at the door the door opened but he saw no one there he could not understand it the door closed again. He knocked again. The door opened again. But still, he saw not one there. Not one was there. Not one. Jack stepped in then. And what stood before him? A little hairy old man. What can I do for you? Said the hairy man. 
I want work, sir, said Jack. Ha, 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 said the hairy man. Work you want, is it? Come this way, I'll show you work. Did anyone send you up here? No, said Jack, quite cheerfully. You're brave, said the hairy man. There hasn't been anyone up here for thirty odd years, he said. I'll see, I'll see, I shall see about getting work for you. When did you eat today? Oh, I don't feel hungry, said Jack. Well, I do, said the hairy man. Come this way. You have not seen the master yet. Jack began to shiver. Jack began to stare. And who should sit down at the great dinner table but a big giant? Jack stared and stared. Well, my brave man, said the giant, come to look for work, have you? Ha ha, I'll give you work, if work is what you want. Jack began to miss the little hairy man. He'd rather have the little hairy man. Sit down there, said the giant. Jack saw an enormous plate before him. You've to eat all that, said the giant. Remember, you haven't seen your master yet. How many masters must I see? Jack said to himself. But he um, noticed the plentiful of food on the plate. You'll want a place to sleep in, won't you? said the giant. Yes, said Jack. Come here and I'll show you. And there stood Jack's dear little hairy man. Jack stepped after him into a room and saw a huge bed. Too big for me, said Jack to himself. Then who dropped in but a bigger giant than the first. A bigger giant than the first. And... This one, this one seemed to be a bit misled for a giant. You're not sleeping with me, said Jack. No, my man, said the giant. That is your bed to yourself. I'll be glad of the rest, said Jack. And he pulled his shoes off and be up on his bed, down on the pillow, and he snored and snored till it was morning time. You wouldn't know it was morning if you didn't know. It was always dark up there. A ten-pound knock came at the door and shook Jack's bed from under him. Come down to your breakfast, my man, come down, said the giant. Poor Jack went down for his breakfast. Certainly he did. Jack saw two giants, a little shrimp, and the hairy man. Jack, said the first giant, I want you to do some very hard work today. You're to go into the green room today. There stands a table before you, my boy, and you'll have to sleep there for three nights, my boy, and unpick every single bit of rag that's in the great big rug. I try my best, sir, said Jack, shivering again. The giant went away 
and slam the door on him. There were only two candles for his work. He must have had good eyes too. So he picked up the rug and started working. At last he began to tremble. He partly knew there was somebody about, and the enormous big giant with his glistening eyes came in. Well, Jackie said, have you found anything? Have you seen anything? What do you want me to see or find? said Jack. Is there anything in this dark room to find or see? Seek not for information, said the big giant, but get on with your work. The door went slam, with a fast lock. Jack began to work again, and he looked towards a big, long chest that stood in the darkest corner. He heard a whisper in the chest. Unpick the rug from the middle, Jack, and your three days' task will soon be finished. But do not say that you heard anything. The big giant came in, shining the room up with his glittering eyes. You're doing your work wonderful, Jack, he said, but I'm not quite satisfied. You must have seen someone help you with that rug. I don't know what you're talking about, said Jack. The giant went out the same old way with a slam of the door. It struck Jack about the old chest that stood in the corner. He stepped up to it and was tempted to undo the lock. The word was spoken. You can't undo that lock. Look on the shelf, Jack, and look pretty sharp. And you'll find the key of the chest. Jack looked sharp and found the key. He unlocked the chest and the lid opened. And then he staggered backwards. He saw inside the sparkle of a beautiful green dress and a pale face. A lovely lady. Then she up and spoke to Jack before she lay down again. Jack, she said, I've been locked in this chest for the last 30 years. Jack was staggered. Are you a ghost, he said. No, she said. I'm human like you are. There's still a bit of life in me. I'm in my wedding dress. You are my brave man, Jack. Those two giants are enchanted and that little hairy man is my father. And now, Jack... I've told you my secret, so don't hesitate, Jack. Close the chest, fasten the lock, and say nothing. By this time, the whole rug is unpicked. At last, three thumps. The giant came. Come in, said Jack. My word, said the giant. You have worked that cloth beautifully. Jack, you must have found something or seen someone. There's... Only one more thing. Jack, you've got to do for me one more thing. To go to that pond outside the castle and find two diamond rings. Well, said Jack, that's impossible, sir, to find two diamond rings. The giant glared at him quite furiously. Poor Jack went out to the dirty pond and he plundered to himself. Could he find these two diamond rings? He saw a white swan, and he thought to have a chat with this swan. But it reared up at him, and Jack got more frightened of the swan than he was of the two giants. Jack, said the swan, follow me, and I'll show you where the diamond rings are. Jack followed the swan up to the pond. Don't get disheartened, Jack, she said. I've got those diamond rings for you. And the swan lifted up her bill, and there were the rings she had picked up from the bottom of the pond. 
And now, Jack, she said, go back to that giant and tell him you've seen no one and give those two rings into his hands. Back went Jack, quite cheerfully, stepping into the green room, went up to the chest the first thing and opened the lid and spoke gently to the lovely green lady. He showed her the rings. Jack, she said, my good lad, give them to that brute and do not return here again to me. You will find me somewhere else. Jack went bravely from her and stepped up to the big giant. Here you are, brute, he said. What? said the giant. Those same two diamond rings that caused a lot of bloodshed. Well, Jack, you've fulfilled your work. You've beaten me, Jack, and you've won the grey castle. You'll be poor Jack no longer. Go into the green room and you shall have your reward. Jack went into the other room quite happily and proud and a nice gentleman met him at the door. He was looking for the little hairy man, but he couldn't see him. Only this very nice gentleman to keep poor Jack company. Then he saw the castle, all of a light shine, when he had never seen before. The gentleman danced him into another great room, and he could see the table laid out with chickens and ducks, and all sorts of good things. He was plundering, where were the guests? And two young men appeared, shining like rising sun. He was looking for the two giants, and lo and behold, these two gentlemen Jack was quite excited and quite exhausted. Then who came in after but a lovely lady in a pale green dress and a green veil. She came up to Jack and said, Jack, my boy, you have broken our enchantment. With that, she threw back her green veil and stood before him, the most handsome young lady in all the land. Then they all gathered together, the father, two brothers, Jack and the lady without one enemy in the world. And Jack married the lovely lady, and so they lived forevermore after. I think it would say happy in there, but uh, it's missing. It says, so they lived forevermore after. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can guess what that story should be and what it is now. Very different though, isn't it? It's not quite the same. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please leave a like and subscribe. I would appreciate it. Many blessings. Good night. Hi guys. Welcome back to my channel. Please leave a like and subscribe if you like stories. That's why I'm here. I do lots of other things as well though. But tonight it is the fairy tale. The Black Bull. Of Norway. In Norway once there lived a certain woman and she had three daughters. The eldest of them said to her mother, Mother, bake me a bannock and roast me a collop for I am going away to spotch my fortune. Her mother did so and the daughter went away to an old witch washerwife and told her purpose. The old wife bade her to stay that day and go and look out of her back door and see what she could see. She saw nothing the first day. 
The second day she did the same and saw nothing. On the third day she looked again and saw a coach and six coming along the road. She ran in and told the old wife what she saw. Well, said the old wife, that's for you. So they took her into the coach and galloped off. The second daughter, next, said to her mother, Mother, bake me a bannock and roast me a collop, for I'm going away to spot my fortune. Her mother did so, and away she went to an old witch washerwife, and her sister had done just the same. So it was as before. On the third day she looked out of the back door, and she saw a coach and four coming along the road. Well, said the old wife, that's for you. So they took her in, and off they set. The third daughter said to her mother, Mother, bake me a bannock, and roast me a collop, for I am going away to spot my fortune. Her mother did so, and away she went to the old witch washerwife, who told her to look out of her back door and see what she could see. So she did, and when she came back she said she saw nothing. The second day she did the same and saw nothing. The third day she looked again. When she came back she said to the old wife that she saw nothing but a great black bull coming crooning along the road. Well, said the old wife, that's for you. When she heard this, the girl was next to distract her with grief and terror, but she was lifted up and set on the bull's back, and away they went. Aye, they travelled and they travelled, till the girl grew faint with hunger. Eat out of my right lug, said the black bull, and drink out of my left lug, and set by your leavings. She did as he said, and was wonderfully refreshed. And long they went, and saw they went, till they came in sight of a very big and bonny castle. Yonder we must be this night, said the bull, for my old brother lives here. And presently they were at the place. They lifted her off his back and took her in, and sent him away to park for the night. In the morning, when they brought the bull home, they took the girl into a fine shining parlour and gave her a beautiful apple, telling her not to break it till her heart was like to break, and over again like to break. Then she was lifted on the bull's back. After she had ridden far and farer than I can tell you, they came in sight of a far bonnier castle, and far further than the last one. The bull said, Yonder we must be this night, for my second brother lives there. And they were placed directly. They lifted her down and took her in and sent the bull to the field. In the morning, they took her into a fine room and gave her the finest pear she had ever seen, telling her not to break it till her heart was like to break and over again like to break. Then she was lifted on the bull's back and away they went. And long they went and saw they went till they came in sight of the far biggest castle, and the far farest off they had yet seen. Yonder we must hear tonight, said the bull, because my young brother lives here. 
and straight they were at place. They lifted her down, took her in and sent the bull to the meadow. In the morning they took her into a room, the finest of all, and gave her a plum, telling her not to break it till her heart was like to break and over again like to break. Then they brought the bull home, set the girl on his back and away they went. And long they went, and saw they went, till they came to a dark and ugsome glen, where they stopped, and the girl lighted down. The bull said to her, Here you must stay till I go and fight with the old fellow. You must sit yourself on that stone, and move neither hand nor foot, not until I come back. Else I'll never find you again, and in Everything rooted about you turns blue. I have beaten the old fellow. But should all things turn red, he'll have beaten me. She sat herself down on the stone, and by and by all around her turned blue. She was overcome with joy. She lifted the one foot and crossed it over the other. So glad that she was the black bull's friend, and the black bull had won. The bull came and sought her, but never could find her for that. Long she kept, ere she wept, till she wearied. At last she rose and went away. She knew not where to. On she wondered, till she came to a great hill of glass, that she tried all she could to climb, but was not able. Round the bottom of the hill she went, seeking a passage over, till at last she came to a smith's house, and the smith promised, if she would serve him seven years, he would make her iron shoes for her to climb that glassy hill. At seven years' end, she got her iron shoes, climbed the glassy hill, and came to the old witch washerwife's house. There, she was told of a fine young man that had given some bloodstained shirts to wash, and whoever washed the shirts was to be his wife. The witch had washed and then she set her daughter to, and both washed, they washed, and they better washed, in hopes of getting the young man. But for all they could do, they could do nothing to bring out a single stain. At length they put the girl to work, and whenever she began, the stains came out, pure and clean, and the old witch made the young man believe that it was her daughter had washed the shirts. So the young man and the daughter were to be married, and the girl was distracted at the thought of it. Then, because her heart was like to break, and over again like to break, she took the apple and broke. The apple was filled with golden jewels, the richest that she'd ever seen, and she shoved them to the daughter. I will give them you all these, she said, if you will put off the marriage for one day, and one night, and let me into his room alone. The daughter took the golden jewels, but the witch made a sleeping drink and gave it to the young man. He drank it and never woke till morning. And all the while, the girl lay by him, sobbing and singing. Seven long years I served for thee, the glassy hill I clomb for thee, thy bloody sark I rang for thee, and wilt thou not waken and turn to me? But he did not. The next day, the girl did not know what to do for grief. 
She thought that her heart was like to break and over again like to break. So she broke the pair and found it filled with golden jewels, far richer than before. She took the golden jewels to the witch's daughter and the marriage was put off for one day and one night. And she was let into the young man's room all alone. But the old wife gave him another sleeping drink and he again slept till morning. And for the while the girl lay sighing and singing and crying as before. Seven long years I served for thee, the glassy hill I clomb for thee, thy bloody sark I rang for thee, and wilt thou not waken to turn to me? Still he slept, and she nearly lost hope altogether. But that morning the young man went out, and he met a shepherd, who asked him what noise and moaning, what that he had heard all night from the young man's chamber. The young man said he had heard no noise, but the shepherd said that there was so, and that the young man should stay awake and hear. The third time the girl brought the plum as she thought her heart was to break and break again over. So she broke the plum, and inside the plum she found golden jewels, and by far the farthest rich of all. She gave them to the daughter to put off the marriage for another day and another night, and for herself to be with the young man in his room alone. The witch gave the young man another sleeping drink, but he told her he could not drink it that night without sweetening. And when she went away to fetch honey for the drink, he poured it out and made her think that he had drunk it after all. Then he went to his bed. The girl came and lay by him and sang, Seven long years I served for thee, The glassy hill I clomb for thee, Thy bloody sark I rang for thee, O oh, my bonny bull of Norway, Wilt thou not waken and turn to me? He heard and turned to her, And she told him all that had happened to her, And he told her all that had happened to him. And... He had the old witch washerwife and her daughter burnt, and he himself and the girl were married, and they're living happily till this day, for all I know. And that is the story of the Black Bull of Norway. If you hadn't guessed it, the Black Bull was the man who had been enchanted, and they were in some sort of enchanted land, that's why she weren't meant to move. So when she moved, obviously... She lost herself in this enchanted land and the fact that he won meant his enchantment were broke. So he then returned back to a man who was able to seek to get his clothes washed from the blood from the fighting, obviously, as a bull. So that's sort of the story, is that the man at the end is actually the bull and it was an enchantment and they were in an enchanted land and the spell had to be broken, but she wasn't meant to move and she did. So she got lost in the enchantment as he went on his way. Um, so I just wanted to explain that to you in case he did not realise that that's what the story was about. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed and many blessings. Hi guys, welcome back to my channel. We are now on Mossy Court. There once was a poor old widow woman as lived in a little cottage. She had a daughter and she was very beautiful 
Her mother was very busy every day. A spinning of a coat for her. A hawker came courting this girl, came regular, he did, and kept on a bringing of her, this thing that had. And he was in love with her, and badly wanted her to marry him. But she wasn't in love with him. It didn't fall out like that. And she was in puzzlement, what she'd best do about him. So one day, she asked her mother, Let him come her mother told her, and get what you can out of him, while I finish this coat. After, when you won't have no need of him, nor his presence neither. Then finish. So tell him, girl, as you won't marry him, unless he gets you a dress of white satin with sprigs of gold on it, as big as a man's hand, and mind as you tell him, it must fit exactly. Next time the hawker came round and asked her to wed him, the girl told him just this, the very same as her mother had said. He took stock of her size and built, the hawker did, and inside of a week he was back with dressed. It answered the describance all right, and when the girl went upstairs with her mother and tried it on, it fitted her exactly. What should I do now, mother? she asked. Tell him, her mother said, as you won't marry him, unless he gets you a dress of silk, the colour of all the birds of the air, and as before, it must fit you exactly. The girl told the hawker this, and in two or three days, he was back at the cottage, with this coloured silk dress the girl had asked for. And, being as he knew the size from the other one, of course it fitted her exactly. Now what should I do, mother? She asked. Tell him, her mother said, as you won't marry him unless he gets you a pair of silver slippers as fits you exactly. The girl told the hawker so, and in a few days he called round with them. The slippers fitted her exactly, and they were not too tight, neither were they too big or loose. Again, the girl asked her mother what she should do. I can finish the coat tonight, her mother said. So, you can tell the hawker you'll marry him tomorrow. And he's to be here at ten o'clock. So the girl told him this. Think on, my dear, she says, ten o'clock in the morning. I'll be there, my love, he says. I shall. That night, her mother was at work on the coat till late. But when she finished it all right, she had finished it. Green moss and gold thread, that's what it was made of. Just them two things, mossy coat, she called it, and gave the name to her daughter. It was a magic coat, she said, a wishing coat. She told her daughter this. When she'd got into it, she told her she'd only to wish to be somewhere and she'd be there in a very instant. The next morning, the mother was up. By the time it was light, she called her daughter and told her she must now go into the world and seek her fortune, and a handsome fortune it was to be. She was a foreseer, the old mother was, and knew what was a-coming. She gave her daughter a mossy coat and put it under by her clothes, and a gold crown for her head to take with her, 
and she told her to take as well the two dresses and the silver slippers she'd had off the hawker, but she was not to go in the clothes. She was to wear the one she wore them every day, her working clothes, that is. And now she's ready for to start. Mossy Coat is. Her mother then tells her she is to wish herself a hundred miles away and then walk on until she comes to a big hall and there she's to ask for a job. You won't have far to walk, my blessed, the mother says. And you'll be sure that you'll find work at this big hall. Mossy Coat did as her mother told her and soon she found herself in front of a fine gentleman's house. She knocked at the front door and said she was looking for work. Well, the long and the short of it was that the mistress herself came to see her and she liked the look of her, the lady did. What work can you do, she asked. I can cut your ladyship's and mossy coat. In fact, I'm in the way of being a very good cook. From what people have remarked, I can't give you a job as a cook, the lady tells her, being as I've got one already, but I'd be willing to employ you to help the cook, if you can be satisfied with that. Thank you, ma'am, said Mossy Coat. I'd be real glad of the place. So it was settled. She was to be the undercook. And after, when the lady had shown her up to the, her bedroom, she took her to the kitchen and introduced her to the other servants. This is Mossy Coat, she tells them, and I've engaged her. She says to be undercook. She leaves them to it, the mistress does, and Mossy Coat, she goes up to her bedroom again to unpack her things and hide away the gold crown and silver slippers and her silken satin dresses. The other kitchen girls were far beside themselves with jealousy and it didn't mend matters that the new girl was a sight more beautifuler than what any of them were. Here was this vagrant in rags put above them when all she was fit for was the best was a scullery girl. If anybody was to be undercook it stands to sense it should be one of them as really they knew about things not this girl in rags and tatters picked up off the roads but they'd put her in her place, they would. So they go on and on, till Mossy Coat comes down ready to start work. Then they set on her. Who did she think she was? She'd be the undercook, would she? No fear. What she'd have to do, and all she was fit for, was to scour the pans, clean the knives, do the grates, and such like. And all she'd get was this. And down came the skimmer on the top of her head. Pop, pop, pop. That's what you deserve, they tell her. And that's what you can expect, my lady. And that's how it was with Mossy Coat. She was put to do all the dishes and all the dirtiest work. And soon she was up to her ears in grease and her face as black as soot. And every now and again, first on and first then another, the servants would pop, pop, pop her on the head with a skimmer till the poor girl's head was that so she couldn't hardly abide it. Well, it got on and it got on and still Mossy Coat was up to her pans and knives and grates and still the servants were pop, pop, popping her 
on the head with the skimmer. Now, there was a big dance coming, as was last three nights with hunting and other sports in the daytime. All the headmost people for miles round were to be there, and the master and mistress and the young master, of course, they were going. It was all the talk of the servants this dance was. One was wishing she should be there, another would like to dance with some of the young lads and lords. A third would like to see the ladies' dresses. And so they went on, all escaping mossy coat. If only they had clothes, they'd be all right, they thought, as they considered themselves as good as the high-titled ladies anyway. And you, mossy coat, you'd like to go, wouldn't you now, they say. A fit person you'll be there in all your rags and dirt, they say. And down comes the skimmer on her head, pop, pop, pop. Then they laugh at her, which goes to show what a low class of people they actually were. Now Mossy Coat, as I've said before, was very handsome. And rags and dirt couldn't hide that. The other servants might think that they had done this to her. But the young master had actually had his eyes on her. And... The master and mistress, they'd always taken a particular notice of her, an account of her good looks. When the big dance was coming, they thought it would be nice to ask her to go on it. So, they sent her to see if she'd like to go. No thank you, she says. I'd never think of such a thing. I know my place better than that, she says. Besides, I'd be greasy. All the side, I'd grease all this side, that side, she tells them, and I'd grease all the couch. And anybody's clothes I came up against, I would grease them too, because I'm just full of grease. They make light of that, and press her to go, the master and the mistress do. It's very kind of them, Mossy Coat says, but she's not for going. She says, and she sticks to that. When she gets back into the kitchen, I am going to leave it there right now guys. I have to do something and I shall be right back. Sorry my dog is needed me. So when she gets back into the kitchen, you may depend on it, the other servants want to know why she'd been sent for. Had she got notice or what was it? So she told them the master and mistress had asked her to go. She liked to go to the dance with them, they said. What? You, they say. It's unbelievable. If I had been one of us now, one of us, that would be different. But you, why? You'd never be allowed in. You'd grease all the gentlemen's clothes. If they were in here, you would dance with a scullery girl. And the ladies... They'd be forced to hold their noses when they pass by you. To be sure they would. No, they couldn't believe. They couldn't believe it at all, they said. That the master and the mistress had even asked her to go to the hall with them. She must be lying, they said. And down came the skimmer atop of her head. Pop, pop, pop. The next night, the master and the mistress and their son, this time asked her to go to the dance. It was a grand affair the night before, they said, and 
she should have been there. It was going to be the most grander night ever, they said, and they begged her to come. They begged her to come with them, especially the young master, but no. No, she says, an account of her rags and the grease and the dirt. She couldn't, she just couldn't, and she wouldn't. And even the young master couldn't persuade her, though it wasn't for the want of trying. The other servants just didn't believe her when she told them about her being invited again to the dance. And about the young master being present too. Hark to her, they say. What will the upstart say now? And all lies, they say. One of them with a mouth like pig trough and legs like a cart horse catches hold of the skimmer and down it comes, pop, 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 on Mossycoat's head. That's right, Mossycoat decided she would go she would go to the dance, <clears throat> and she'd go in right proper style too, all on her own, and without nobody knowing it. The first thing she does is to put all the servants into a trance. She just touches each of them, just, just touches them, unnoticed, as she moves about, and they all fall asleep. They're all asleep. And she just moves around them slowly and does what she needs to do. And they won't wake up again on their own. The spell has to be broken by somebody with the power. Same as she has through her magic coat. Or it's got to be some other way. But it can't just be stopped. Next, Mossy Coat has a real good wash. She'd never been allowed to before since. She'd been at the vale and the hill. And since the servants were determined to make and keep her as greasy and dirty as they could. Then she goes upstairs to the bedroom, throws off her work clothes and shoes and puts on her white satin dress with gold sprigs and her silver slippers and her gold crown. Of course, she had mossy coat on underneath. As soon as she was ready, she just wished herself to the dance, and there she was, very near, as soon as the wish was spoken. She did just feel herself rising up and flying through the elements, but only for a moment, and then there she was, in the ballroom. The young master sees her standing there, and he catches sight of her, and he can't take her his eyes off her. He'd never seen anybody as handsome before, or as beautifully dressed. Who is she? He asks his mother. But she doesn't know, she tells him. Can't you find out, mother, he says. Can't you go talk to her? His mother sees he'll never rest until she does. And so, up she goes and introduces herself to the young lady. And asks her who she is, where she comes from, and such and that. But all she could get out of her was that she came from a place where they hit her on the head with a skimmer. Then presently, the young master, he goes over and introduces himself. But she doesn't tell him her name, nor anything. And when he asks to have a dance with, with her, she says no, she'd rather not. 
he stops beside her and he keeps asking her time and time again and at the finish she says she will and links up with him they dance once up and down the room then she says she must go he presses her in to stop but it's a waste of breath she's determined to go there and then all right he says there was something else he could say i'll come and see you off but she just wished herself back at home of course and there she was there were no seeing her off for the young master well there couldn't there wasn't she just went from his side in the twinkle of an eye leaving him standing there gaping with wonderment thinking she might be in the hall or the porch awaiting a carriage he goes to see but there's no sign of her anywhere inside or out and nobody asked or seen her go he went back to the ballroom but he can't think of nothing or nobody but her and all the time he's a-wanting to go home when mossy coat is back home she makes sure that all the other servants are still in trance she goes and changes into a working get-up and after when she'd done that she come down into the kitchen again and touched each of the servants that wakens them as you might say anyway they start up wondering whatever time of day it is and how long they've been asleep mossy coat tells them and drops a hint she may have to let the mistress know they beg of her not to tell about them and most of them think to give her presents if she won't tell old things they were but with a bit of wearing them still a skirt a pair of shoes stockings stays and what not so mossy coat promises she won't tell on them and that night they don't hit her on the head with a skimmer all the next day the young master is unrestful he can't settle his mind to nothing but the young lady he fell in love with at the very first sight of her he was wondering all the time would she be there again tonight and would she vanish the same as she did last night he could not stop the thinking of her and he could not understand why he could not catch up with her and what was she doing for at this second he must find out where she lives he thinks else how is he to go on after the dance is over he'd die he tells his mother if he can't get her for his wife and that he's madly in love with her well says his mother i thought she was a nice modest girl but she wouldn't say who or what she was or where she came from except it was a place that they hit her on the head with a skimmer she's a bit of a mystery i know says the young master but that doesn't signify i want her any less i must have her mother he says whoever whatever she is and that's the dear truth mother strike me dead if it isn't women servants have long ears and big mouths and you might be sure it wasn't long before the young master and this wonderful handsome lady had fallen in love there was a talk of the kitchen and fancy you mossy coat thinking he specially wanted you to go to the dance they say and starting on her proper making all the manner of nasty sarcastical remarks hitting her on the head with a skimmer pop 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 for lying to them as they said it was the same again later on when the master and mistress had sent for her and asked her once more to go to the dance with them once more she refused it was her last chance they said and that was the servants and 
a lot more besides that isn't worth repeating. And down came the skimmer atop of the head. Pop, pop, pop. Then she put the whole breed of them into a trance like she had done the night before. She got herself ready to go to the dance. The only difference being that this time she put her other dress on. The one made of silk, the colour of all the birds of the air. She is in the ballroom now, Mossy Coat is. The young master, he's waiting and watching for her. As soon as he sees her, he asks his father to send for the fastest horse in the stable. And David kept standing, ready saddled at the door. Then he asks his mother to go over and talk to the young lady for a bit. She does that, but can't learn no more about her than she did the night before. Then the young master hears that his horse is ready at the door. So he goes over to the young lady and asks her for a dance. She says just the same as she said the night before. No at first, but yes at the finish. And just as then, she says she must go after when they've danced only once the length of the ball and back. But this time he keeps hold of her till they get outside. Then she wishes herself at home and is nearly as soon as she has spoken. The young master felt her rise into the air. But, obviously, what could the young master do? <laughs> the young master could do nothing to stop her. But perhaps he did touch her foot, because she dropped one slipper. I couldn't be sure that he did. It looked a bit like it, though. He picks the slipper up, but as far as catching her, it would be easier by far to catch the wind on a blowing night. As soon as she gets home, Mossy Coat changes back into her old things. Then she looses the other servants from the spell she put on them. They'd been asleep again, they think, and offer Mossy Coat one a shilling, another half a crown, another a week's wages, if she won't tell on them, and she promises she won't. The young master is in bed next day, a dying for the love of the lady that lost one of the silver slippers the night before. The doctors can't do him not the least good. So it was given out what his state was and that it was only the lady able to wear the slipper as could save his life. And if she won't come forward, he would marry her. The ladies came from near and far, some with big feet, some with small, but none small enough to get it on, however. Much they pinched and squeezed. Poorer people came as well. But it was just the same with them, and of course all the servants tried, but they were out of it altogether. The young master was a-dying. Was there nobody else, his mother asked, nobody at all, rich or poor? No, they told her. Everybody has tried it, excepting Mossy Coat. Tell her to come at once, says the mistress. So they fetched her. Try this slipper on, she says. That's the mistress. Mossy Coat gets her foot into it easy enough, and it fits her exactly. The young master jumps out of bed, and is just going to take her in his arms. Stop, says Mossy Coat, and runs off. But before long, she's back again in her satin dress with gold sprigs, her gold crown, and both her slippers. The young master is just going to take her in his arms. Stop, she says, and again she runs off. This time comes back in her silk dress, the colour of all the birds of the air. She doesn't stop him this time, and he nearly 
eat so. After, when they have all settled down again, and they were talking, and they had been a-talking, very quiet, but like, there was one or two things the master and mistress and the young master would like to know. How did she get to the dance and back again in no time, they asked. Just wishing, she says, and she tells them all about magic coat. Her mother had made for her, and the powers it gave her, if she cared to use them. Ah, yes, that explains everything, they say. Then they bethink themselves of her saying, as she came from where, they hit her on the head with a skimmer. What did she mean by that? They want to know. She meant just what she said. She told them it was always coming down in her head. Pop, pop, pop. They were right angry when they heard that. And the whole of the kitchen servants were told to go. And the dogs were sent after them to drive the vermins right away from the place. As soon as they could, Mossycoat and the young master got married. And she had a coach and six to ride in. No, ten if she liked. For you may be sure she had everything she fancied. They lived happily ever after. And had a basket full of children. I was there playing the fiddle when their oldest son came of age. But that was many years back now. And I shouldn't wonder if the old master and mistress aren't dead by now, though I've never, never heard tell us they were. And that's the end of Mossy Coat. Mossy Coat is basically the Cinderella, um, but this is more of a British type version, so it's much older as well. Um, but it is Cinderella, it is just an older version and it's called Mossy Coat originally. Obviously, they changed it so that it would be very, you know, princess-like and such. When really she, you know, she was a witch. So, um, yeah, I quite like the original story, although some of the wording again is... What's the word I'm looking for? Hard to understand when you put it together, really. You can make out what it means and, and what the meaning is around it, but you wouldn't find sentences like that now. Not very much, anyway. But I enjoyed that. I like the original Cinderella. Mossy coat. <laughs> Thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone and welcome back to my channel. The fairy tale for tonight is called Yallery Brown. I've heard tell as how the boggles and boggarts were main bad in the old times. But I can't rightly say as I ever saw any of them myself. Not rightly boggles that is. But I'll tell you about Yallery Brown. If he wasn't a boggart, he was main near it, and I knew him myself. So it's all true, strange and true, I tell you. I was working on the high farm to then, and nobbit a lad of sixteen, and maybe eighteen years and my mother and folks dwelt down by 
the pond yonder, at the far end of the village. I had the stables and such to see to, and the horses to help with, and odd jobs to do, and the work was hard, but the pay good. I reckon I was an idle scamp, for I couldn't abide hard work, and I look forward all the week to Sundays when I'd walked down home and not go back till Darklands. By the green lane, I could get to the farm in a matter of 20 minutes, but there used to be a path across the west field yonder by the side of the spinney and on past the fox cover, and I used to go that way. It was longer for one thing, and I wasn't never in a hurry to go back to work, and it was still and pleasant, like of summer nights out in the broad silent fields mid the smell of growing things. Folk said as the spinney was haunted, and for sure I have seen lots of fairy stones and rings on that along the grass edge. But I never saw out in the way of horrors and boggers, let alone Yallery Brown, as I said before. One Sunday I was walking across the west field. It was a beautiful July night, Warm and still, and the air was full of little sounds, as if the trees and grass were chattering to themselves. And all to once, there came a bit ahead of me, the pitifullest greeting I've ever heard. Sob, sobbing, like a bairn spent with fear, and near heartbroken, breaking off into a moan, and then rising again in a long whimpering. Wailing that made me sick, no matter hard it was. I was always fond of babbies too, and I began to look everywhere for the poor creature. Must be Sally Bratton's, I thought to myself. She was always a flighty thing, and never looked after it. Like as not, she's flaunting about the lanes, and has clean forgot the babby. But, though I looked and looked, I could find note, nonetheless crying out, Whilst Ben, I'll take you back to your mother, if you'll only hush your greeting. But for all my looking, I could find note. I kicked under the edge by the spinny side, and I clumb over it, and I sought up and down, by and mid the trees, and through the long grass and weeds but I only frightened some sleeping birds and stinged my own hands with the nettles. I found note, and I fair gave up to last. So I stood there, scratching my head and clean beat with it all. And presently the whimpering got louder and stronger in the quietness, and I thought I could make words out of some. I hearkened with all my ears, and the sorry thing was saying, all mixed up with sobbing. Oh no, the stone, the great big stone. Oh no, the stone on top. Naturally, I wondered where the stone might be. And I looked again. And there by the hedge bottom was a great flat stone, near buried in the moles, and hid in the cotter grass and weeds. One of those stones I will use to call the strangers' tables, 
The strangers danced on them at moonlight nights, and so they were never meddled with. It's ill luck, you know, to cross the tiddy people. However, down I fell on my knees bones by the stone, and hearkened again, clearer nor ever, but tired and spent with greeting, came the little sobbing voice. Oh, oh, the stone, the stone on top. I was misliking to meddle with the thing, but I couldn't stand the whimpering babber. So I tore like mad at the stone, till I felt it lifting from the moles, and all to once it came with a sigh, out of the damp earth, and the tangled grass, and the growing things, and there, in the hull, lay a tiddy thing on its back, blinking up at the moon and at me. It was no bigger than a year-old brat, but it had long cotted hair and beard, twisted round and round its body, so as I couldn't see its clouts, and the hair was all yellow and shining and silky, like a bairn's, but the face of it was old, and if it were hundreds of years since it was young and smooth, that's what it seemed, just a heap of wrinkles and two bright black eyes in the middle set in a lot of shining yellow hair and the skin was the colour of the fresh turned earth in the spring brown as brown could be and its bare hands and feet were brown like the face of it the greeting had stopped but the tears were standing on its cheek and the titty thing looked mazed like in the moonshine and the night air I was wondering what I'd do but by and by it scrambled out of the hull and stood looking about it and at myself. It wasn't up to my knee, but it was the queerest creature I ever set eyes on. Brown and yellow all over, yellow and brown, as I told you before, and with such a glint in its eyes and such a wizened face that I felt feared on it for all that it was so tiddy and old. The creature's eyes got some use to the moonlight and presently it looked up in my face as bold as ever was. Tom, it says, you're a good lad. As cool as you can think, it says, Tom, you're a good lad. And its voice was soft and high and piping, like a little bird twittering. I touched my hat and began to think that what I ought to say. But I was clemmed with fright, and I couldn't open my gob. Outs, shouts the thing again. You needn't be feared of me. You've done me a better turn than you know, my lad, and I'll do as much for you. I can't speak yet, but I thought, Lord, for sure, it's a boggle. No, it says, quick as quick, I'm not a boggle, but you best not ask me what I am anyways. I'm a good friend of yours. My very knee bones struck, for certainly an ordinary body couldn't have known what I'd been thinking to myself. But it looked so kind-like and spoke so fair that I made bold to get out, a bit quavery-like. Might I be asking to know your honour's name? Hmm, it says, pulling its beard. As for that, and it thought a bit. Aye, so, it went on at last. 
Yallery Brown, you may call me. Yallery Brown. It's my nature, you see. And as for my name, it will do as well as any other. Yallery Brown, Tom. Yallery Brown's your friend, my lad. Thank you, master, says I, quite meat-like. And now, he says, I'm in a hurry tonight, but tell me quick, what shall I do for you? Will you have a wife? I can give you the rampingest lass in town. Will you be rich? I'll give you gold, as much as you can carry. Or will you have help with your work? Only say the word. I scratch my head. Well, as for a wife, I have no hankering after such. They're but bothersome bodies, and I have woman folk at home, so I will mend my clouts. And for gold, that's as may be, for you see, I thought he was talking only, and maybe he couldn't do as much as he said. But for work, there, I can't abide work, and if you'll give me a helping hand in it, I'll thank you. Stop, he says quick as lightning, I'll help you and welcome. But if ever you say that to me, if ever you thank me, do you see, you'll never see me more. Mind that now, I want no thanks, I'll have no thanks, do you hear? And he stamped his titty foot on the earth and looked as wicked as a raging bull. Mind that now, great lump as you be, he went on, calming down a bit. And if you ever need help or get into trouble, call on me and say, Yallery Brown, come from the moles, I want thee, and I shall be with you at once. And now, says he, and he plucked a dandelion head, good night to you, and he blowed it up, and it all came into my eyes and ears. Soon I could see again, the tiddy creature was gone. But for the stone, the stone was there still and the hole at my bare feet. I'd have thought I'd been dreaming. Well, I went home to bed, and by the morning I'd near forgot all about it. But when I went to the work, there was none to do. All was done already. The horses seen to, the stables cleaned out, everything in its proper place, and I'd not to do but sit with my hands in my pockets. And so it went on day after day, all the work done by Yallery Brown, and better done too than I could have done it myself. And if the master gave me more work, I sat down by, and the work did itself. The singering irons, or the besom, or what not, set to, and with the never a hand put to them, would get through in no time. For I never saw Yellowy Brown in the daylight, only in the darklings I have seen him hopping about like a willow the wike without his lantern. To first it was mighty fine for me, I'd know to do, and good pay for it. But by and by things began to go arsy varsy. If the work was done for me, it was undone for the other lads. If my buckets were filled, theirs were upset. If my tools were sharpened, theirs were blunted and spoiled. If my horses were clean as daisies, theirs were splashed with muck, and so on. Day in, day out, it was always the same. 
And the lads saw Yallery Brown flitting about of nights, and they saw the things working without hands of days. And they saw as my work was done for me, and theirs undone for them, and naturally they began to look shy on me, and they wouldn't speak or come near me, and they carried tales to the master, and so things went from bad to worse. For do you see, I could do nothing myself. The brooms wouldn't stay in my hand. The plough ran away from me. The hoe kept out of my grip. I thought oft as I'd do my own work after all, so that maybe Yellery Brown would leave me and my neighbours alone. But I couldn't. I could only sit by and look on. And, have the cold sh shoulder turned on me, whilst the unnatural thing was meddling with others and working for me. To last, things got so bad that the master gave me the sack, and if he hadn't, I do believe all the rest of the lads would have sacked him, for they swore as they not stay on the same garth with me. Well, naturally I felt bad. It was a main good place and good pay too. And I was fair mad with Yallery Brown. Has had got me into such a trouble. So before I knew, I shook my fist in the air and called out as loud as I could. Yallery Brown, come from the moors. Thou scamp, I want thee. You'll scarce believe it, but I'd hardly brung out the words as I felt something tweaking by my leg. While I jumped with the smart of it. As soon as I looked down... There was a ruddy thing, with its shining hair and wrinkled face, and wicked glinting eyes. I was in a fine rage, and should like to have kicked him, but it was no good. There wasn't enough of him to get my boot against. But I said to once, to once and once, look here, master, I'll thank you to leave me alone after this. Do you hear? I want none of your help, and I'll have not more to do with you, see now at once. The horrid thing broke out with a screeching laugh and pointed his brown finger at me. Oh ho, Tom, says he, you thanked me, my lad, and I told you not. I told you not. I don't want your help, I tell you, I yelled at him. I only want never to see you again and to have no more to do with you. You can go. The thing only laughed and screeched and mocked as long as I went on swearing. But as soon as my breath gave out, Tom, my lad, he says with a grin, I'll tell you summat, Tom. True's true. I'll never help you again and call you as will. You'll never see me after today. And I never said I'd leave you alone. Tom and I never will, my lad. I was nice and safe under the stone, Tom, and could do no harm. But you will let me out yourself, and you can't put me back again. I would have been your friend and worked for you if you had been wise. But since you are no more than a born fool, I'll give you no more than a born fool's look. And when all goes arsey-varsey and everything's a gee, you'll mind it. As Yallery Brown's doing. Though. Happen you didn't see him. 
Mark my words, will you? And he began to sing, dancing around me like a bairn with his yellow hair, but looking older nor ever with his grinning, wrinkled, bitter face. Work as you will, you'll never do well. Work as you might, you'll never gain out. For harm and mischief and yellowy brown, you've let out yourself from under the stone. I, he said those very words, and they have ringed in my ears ever since, over and over again, like a bell tolling from the burying. And it was the burying of my luck, for I never had any since. However, the imp stood there, mocking and grinning at me, and chuckling like the old devil's own wicked self. And man, I can rightly mind what he said next. It was all cussing and swearing, but I was so amazed in fright that I could only stand there, shaking all over me and staring down at the horrid thing. And I reckon if he'd gone on long, I'd have tumbled down in a fit. But by and by, his yellow shining hair, I can't abide yellow since that, rose up in the air and wrapped itself around him while he looked for all the world like a great dandelion ball, and he floated away on the wind, over the wall and out of sight, with a parting skill of his wicked voice and sneering laugh. I tell you, I was near dead with fear, and I can't scarcely tell how I ever got home at all, but I did somehow, I suppose. Well, that's all. It's not much of a tale, but it's true, every word of it. And there's others besides me who've seen Yallery Brown and known his evil tricks. And did it come true, you say? But did it sure? I have worked here and there and turned my hand to this and that, but it always went to gee. And it is all Yallery Brown's doing. The children died, my wife didn't. The beast never fattered and nothing ever did well with me. I'm going old now. And I shall must end my days in this house, I reckon. But till I'm dead and buried, and happen even afterwards, there'll be no end to Yallery Brown's spite. And day in, day out, I hear him saying, whilst I sit here trembling, work as you will, you'll never do well. Work as you might, you'll never gain note. For I'm in mischief and yellowy brown, you've let out yourself from under the stone. The end. That's the story of Yallery Brown, and I do believe that one is a Yorkshire story. And of course, it's kind of a hobgoblin type deal, or a, a brownie that's not very nice. Um, boggarts are generally bigger than that, so I can't say that it's a boggart, but it might be back then, I don't know. But yeah, it's some sort of fae anyway that um, tricked him, and that's what they generally do. The fae will give, but in return, they want twice as much. <laughs> and when they do give, it's you have to be very careful what you ask for. Thank you for listening, I hope you enjoyed it and many blessings.